Right. Well, Father, your kingdom is forever. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But Father, your truth abideth still. O oh Lord, what faith must have been in the heart, in the bosom of Martin Luther as he experienced all about what he wrote in that song. And Lord, as this morning we pick up back in Hebrews 11 and see another faithful saint of God who faced the devils of his day, and yet he trusted you on the water, and he remained faithful to the glory of his God and to the salvation of of himself and his family. Oh, Father, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're on a rather lengthy journey through the book of Hebrews, and we are relishing every verse of chapter 11. The great hall of faith, and this morning we're only going to look at one verse. How long could that take, right? Yeah, Rodney says two weeks. <laughs> he knows me too well. And we've spent our past three weeks of this study of Hebrews learning about what it means to have faith as a true believer, as a Christian. And this is important because many in the church hold a wrong view about what is faith. Many believe that saving faith is only, is merely a one-time act of trusting whereby a person places their confidence in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and then they get the ticket to heaven, and that's all that God requires. There is nothing else. But what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us, if we will have ears to hear, is that saving faith is not merely a one-time act of believing whereby we say a prayer and we're good to go. And we're good to go for eternity. We give the nod to Jesus and then live as we please. We all know people like that. And no true saving faith is... All truth-saving faith has a beginning place, but then from that point of birth, there is life and life and life and life and life and life and life to that faith. And that's what the author has been trying to tell us all along, and I want to show you context for this. The whole letter has been trying to establish this. For example, Hebrews chapter 2, flip back there, Hebrews 2. 1 through 3, read these words. Hebrews 2, verse 1, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, every transgression and disobedience received just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So, 
from these few verses, we see this. Drifting away is tantamount to neglecting salvation. You see that? Drifting away is tantamount to... It's the same thing as neglecting the salvation that God has offered. Turn to chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, but look at the caveat, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. So what do we learn? We learn that we are truly Christ's house if we hold fast our confidence, just insert the word faith, if we hold fast our faith firm until the end. You following me? Now Hebrews 3 verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So what is he saying? He's saying this. A heart that falls away, verse 12, is an unbelieving heart. And we have become partakers of Christ, however, verse 14, if we hold fast until the end. That is the definition of a true believer. It's not that he just prays a prayer and he's good to go for eternity. But he's a true believer, he's a true child of God, if... The miracle of the heart takes place upon that prayer so that he is born again. He is a new creature. He hasn't just said a prayer. He has become a new person. A new person who was dead but is now alive by faith, in faith, through faith, all the way until the end. Hebrews 5, 9. The author says again, and having been made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So here, Christ became the source of salvation to all who do what? Who obey him. All who in faith, now that they're born again, not that the works save, don't misunderstand this. There's nowhere in the book of Hebrews or anywhere else in the New Testament where you're going to find that works save a person. But once you've been born again, once that new birth has taken place, you begin to live for God. That faith unto salvation becomes the faith of walking in salvation for the rest of your life. And then the verse that sets up the entire context of chapter 11 Hebrews 10.39. It's the very last verse. He's about ready to say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen, right? Before he says that, one verse back, he says this, then, uh, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back. We are not like that. We are not of those who shrink back to the destruction 
uh, to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the opposite here of shrinking back is to have faith or to live by faith like all the people that he will talk about in chapter 11. And so he's been explaining this throughout the book, throughout the book, throughout the book, all the way through, reminding us this is the normal Christian life. You are born again by faith, and then you live by faith, thus authenticating that that prayer of faith represented a true miracle in the heart and not just an emotional fling that you had with Jesus some Sunday morning at a revival. Make sense? And so here's the point. The true Christian faith is not only a decision to place our trust in Christ for salvation. True Christian faith is a life of faith lived, however imperfectly, we're all sinners. These men were all sinners. However imperfectly we live it until death or until Christ returns. There's perhaps no better picture of this kind of of walk of faith that he's calling us to than the life of Noah. The life of Noah. Last week we learned about Enoch who walked with God faithfully for 300 years and then God took him and he was not for God took him. And we had fun explaining that last week. And then before that we saw Abel, faithful Abel, who followed the Lord and was faithful unto death. And today, however, the author would have us consider the amazing faithfulness of Noah. Among the countless faithful saints who have endured and persisted in obedience to God, Noah stands supreme. If for nothing else than the sheer magnitude and time span of his one incredible assignment from the Lord. He never wavered. And from this story of Noah, which we won't have time to read in its entirety, I will reflect on a couple of passages out of Genesis 6. But if you want to read it for yourself, Genesis 6 through about 9, and then there's some residual things after that. But that's, that's the essence of the story, Genesis 6 through 9. But from the life of Noah, we learn, and the author of Hebrews would have us learn, three important truths about the kind of faith that pleases God. The kind of faith that is representative of a true believer. What is that faith like? If you're taking notes, number one, this is going to be real simple this morning. Number one, true faith obeys God's word. True faith obeys God's word. Notice verse 7, the author says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Being warned about things not seen. Now, does that resonate in your mind with anything else that we've read so far in Hebrews 11? Being warned about things not seen. It should because in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, faith is the conviction or proof of things, what? Not seen. 
So you see the consistency of his thought, right? He's building an argument. He starts off by saying, chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what we saw last week is that Enoch, the thing that he could not see but had faith in, is that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. With Noah now, the thing that is not seen is the coming judgment of God that he must make preparation for over a long period of time. Now you know from the story of Jonah, uh, I'm sorry, Noah, boy, Genesis 6 through 9, Noah was not a shipbuilder by trade. He was a farmer. Okay, Noah was a farmer. In fact, he had been a farmer. This is antediluvian or before the flood. And this is when people lived a lot longer. Okay, he was a farmer for 500 years. Noah raised him some watermelon. And some wheat and some corn and who knows what else Noah raised. But he was probably pretty good at it by his 500th birthday. And around 500 years old, he started having children. I don't know why he delayed that long, but, <laughs> but he was just a farmer. Noah, listen, was a farmer who had committed his entire life to be a life of faith, even though the whole world was revolting against God. I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 6. We looked at this a little bit last week, but just for the sake of those who didn't hear last week's message, or for us who have, it doesn't matter what portion of the Word of God we read, it's all good. In chapter 6, Stock talks about the corruption of mankind. And I don't want to read all of this for the sake of time, but verse 5, Then the Lord said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't think there's a stronger indictment in all of the Word of God against the depravity of man. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds in the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, verse 8, praise God for verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Or you could say it this way. But God and the mystery of his sovereignty chose to pour out grace upon Noah. And it's not as though Noah was wicked like everyone else. God was so gracious to him that even in the midst of that perverse generation, Noah was a righteous man. Look at verse 9. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah, watch this term, walked 
with God. This is the same term that's used for Enoch. It's no wonder the author of Hebrews is seizing upon this character. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark. Notice in verse 3 of that same chapter, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Most scholars believe that what he's referring to is not the duration of man's life after the flood, because we don't have a record of consistently men living 120 years. It's not what he's referring to. What he's saying is, he's got 120 years left, and then I'm cutting open the windows of the sky, and the water is going to fill the earth. His day shall be 120 years. He has 120 years to repent. Noah, get started, because it's going to take you 100 years. We all know this story. And we think about this, Noah the farmer who saved the world. This should inspire every person hearing my voice today. Because listen, anyone can be great in the eyes of God. Anyone can be great in the eyes of God. You don't have to be a big CEO. You don't have to be the founder of some worldwide ministry. You don't have to have a name that everybody knows. God is not impressed by people that the world thinks are great. He's not impressed by men and women and young people who believe that they're something. No, He is impressed by men and women and young people who believe God is great. And who are committed to faithfully serving Him no matter what He asks them to do. That's who God esteems. Do you realize that, forget about self-esteem. We don't want self-esteem. We want God's esteem. I want God to look on my life with favor. I want God to look at my life and say, I'm impressed with that. And Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Consider your calling, brethren, that there, not, there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. This is Mother's Day, right? So let me encourage the mothers here today. I'm especially thinking of the young moms who are just starting out or who've been just starting out for the last five or six years. I know sometimes the work that you do may seem 
long and hard and tedious. Been there. I've never been a mother. I have seven of my own. The work you do is, may sometimes feel insignificant. Nobody sees. Maybe you think nobody cares. But I'm here to tell you, God sees. God sees. I know there are some days when you just want to cry because you are overwhelmed with the, the assignment God has given you. God has asked you to do this thing. Raise these children for my glory. And you're going to think to yourself, you might as well tell me to build an ark. It's impossible. But if you're seeking to faithfully serve the Lord by wiping noses and bottoms and telling stories and spanking and doing all the things that need to be done so that your little ones will grow up to treasure Christ as you do, believe me, God is more impressed by you than He is a thousand preachers who will stand up before the sacred desk this morning trying to make a name for themselves. God tells us who He's impressed with. Isaiah 66, verse 2. But this is the one I will look upon, says the Lord, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The poor, insignificant farmer was the greatest man on earth. In this generation, because he was humble, he was contrite in spirit, and he trembled at the word of God. That's what it says, right? Verse 7, by faith Noah being warned about the things not yet seen, in reverence, just insert, with trembling He didn't have all of the revelation. It was progressive. It was coming. Noah didn't have anything written down, probably. If he did, we don't have it. He was a poor, insignificant farmer. He lived in a generation that hated God, and all he wanted to do was please God. He was the greatest man in the world. He was the greatest man in the world. Genesis 6-9 reads, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Walking with God is the same thing as walking by faith or living by faith. The world was so wicked in Noah's day that it grieved God that he had even created man, so he decided to judge the whole world by a great flood and save only Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And so the word of the Lord came to Noah. Build an ark to save two of every animal and yourself and your family. And I think it's safe to say, anybody else who wants to get on board, because we know from other passages that Noah spent that hundred years not only building a boat, and he had to figure out how to do that, not only building a boat, but preaching to his generation to repent. 
Hebrews 11:7 by faith Noah being warned by God about these things not seen in reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household now let's go back to the author's main point salvation isn't only about praying a prayer getting your ticket to ride for eternity no true saving grace bears the fruit of faith unto salvation and to a life walking with God. However imperfectly, even the Apostle Paul said, it's not as though I've attained. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Walking with God. But a couple of things to point out here in this text, verse 7. But Noah being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark, It's interesting, the word ark there is the exact same word used for the the other ark that would come, the ark of the covenant. So here we have the Lord who is about to enter into covenant as soon as the door comes open and the rainbow in the sky and all of that. And it's very explicit there. It's called the Noahic covenant as opposed to the Mosaic covenant that would come with Moses no, no big deal here, no big doctrinal deal here, but it is interesting to notice that he chose the same word. The ark, the box, it literally means the box, the crate, the big box that Noah built. Mo- Noah built a box to carry him and his family. Get in the box and we'll be safe. And notice also at the end, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Now you see the point of the author kind of coming through his interpretation of the story of Noah. He's saying, by faith, Noah heard the word of God and he obeyed in reverence. For a hundred years he obeyed for the salvation. If you were to study theology, then, then you would know, and perhaps you do know, that when you study the issues of Uh, saving faith, saving grace, all the things relative to salvation, that whole systematic study is called, anybody know? Soteriology. The word here for salvation is soterion. He's talking about salvation. If you were to interpret soterion, it's exactly this, and it's exactly what you think it means. It's not just that he was saved from death. It was that God intended for this to be a picture for the rest of us that we are saved from the wrath of God by the same kind of faith that Noah exercised. And what kind of faith that Noah, did Noah exercise? It was a faith that, yes, it was a some point in time Noah came to terms with the fact that God is his only hope. And perhaps not indwelt by the Spirit like we are now that the Spirit has come. And I don't want to get into that whole element of soteriology. But for the rest of his life then, that faith demonstrated that it was alive. That's why James has to ask. Man may say he has faith, but what good is that faith if there aren't any works to show that it's alive? It's dead. 
It took a hundred years for Noah and his sons to build that ark. As best we can tell from the text, it was to be a vessel that stood 438 feet long, 73 feet wide, 44 feet high, give or take a few feet. In other words, it was more than one and a half times the length of a football field and more than four modern stories high. Problem was, Noah, as, as best we can tell, didn't live anywhere near water. And as best we can tell, it had never rained. So you're going to build a boat, Noah. I have a question. What's a boat? Well, the Lord says it's going to rain. It's really going to rain. I mean, it's going to rain so bad, this boat's going to float. What's rain? Previous to that, the only indication that we have is that the the Lord watered the earth from the springs beneath. By any normal way of thinking, this was an impossible task. Can we agree on that? This was an impossible task. But Noah didn't argue with God. He didn't complain about the hardships he would face along the way. God spoke and he obeyed. He'd already walked with God 500 years. He'd already been finding favor with God He'd already seen God's kindness demonstrated to him again and again and again and again. Can you imagine being a righteous person living in that generation? I mean, we didn't even talk about the Nephilim there in chapter 6, how the sons of God and the daughters of men and the demon-possessed people who were running around all over the place and the violence. And yet God was gracious to him. God loved him. God cared for him. God protected him for 500 years. Years. And that's precisely the truth the author would have us seize upon. As far as Noah was concerned, he was simply fulfilling the next assignment. It was certainly the biggest one in his life. But God told Noah, build an ark. Implication is, I'll be there for you, I'll make sure it happens. You won't be building it alone. If that calls for me, I'm busy. (laughs) This is what the author wants us to know. God has arcs for every believer to build. God has an arc for you to build. God may have several arcs for you to build before he takes you home. Or you may be like David Brainerd. Or you might be like Henry Martin. Or you might be like Jim Elliott. Got one thing for you to do. When you're done, you're home. Wouldn't that be great? Lord, give me that task. (laughs) I want to go home. God may have half a dozen arcs for you to build. Maybe God wants you to build your family. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's an ark worthy of building. I have often said, listen, if I can fully disciple seven people in my life, I have seven kids. If I can fully disciple seven people and have them walk with God for the rest of their life, I will have considered my ark built. And then the Lord's going to say, yeah, but what about the grandkids? There's another one. A smaller ark, maybe. Maybe bigger. God has seemingly impossible assignments for each one of us to tackle and achieve by His grace. Some have a marriage that seems impossible to rebuild. God's word is clear. Your assignment is not ambiguous. The only question is, do you trust God's word? 
Some have stubborn, sinful habits that need to be put aside simply because God says so. No, it's not going to be easy. And yes, it will take a lot of time and effort. But here's the question. Do you trust God's Word? Some God is calling to the mission field or some other form of ministry that's going to be difficult and it's not going to land you in a, in a, in the, in a really posh house with a nice car and all the retirement benefits and all that might go with that. But God's calling you to it. And you can't let that go. By the way, I've taken up what David Sitton said a few weeks ago. I'm praying for 20 of you to go. And some of you will go. And a couple already have gone. And maybe we'll, we'll stay gone for the glory of God. And we'll support them. But some of you may be called of God to begin that kind of work. That's an ark. It's a major deal. That's going to cost you the rest of your life and may cost you your life. And the only question really is, do you trust God? Do you trust His Word? You know, all, the pro- all of His promises are true. Every promise He's ever made, He has kept. Every promise that has left unfulfilled will be fulfilled. He loves you far beyond anything you can imagine. He would never tell you to do something that He is unwilling to provide for. I told you when I was at Word of Life Bible Institute up in New York, remember Jack Wurtson used to say to us young men, he'd say, men, you need to know this early on before you get started in life on your own. The happiest and safest place you could ever be is right in the center of God's will. If that means being a businessman for the glory of God, then so be it. If that means losing your life in the 1040 window, that's where you're going to be happiest. That's where your joy will be found. The only question is, do you trust His Word? The reason we have this wonderful story in the Bible is simply because Noah heard the word of God and obeyed it by faith. And Genesis 6.22 says, Thus Noah did according to all that God had said. And then in chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. You see, when faith has nothing to go on but God's word, that's all the proof it needs. That's all the proof it needs. And so the first truth about the kind of faith that pleases God, the kind of faith that is exemplified in the life of a true believer is this. It's the kind of faith that hears and obeys God's written word. Secondly, true faith rebukes the wicked. Now this is interesting. True faith rebukes the wicked. Notice what he says in verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. Noah's life was a, a living rebuke to the world around him. And I think you can take condemn here two ways. 
You can take condemn in the immediate sense of him living a life, a righteous life with God, calling people to repentance and being hated by them for it. His life was a living rebuke. And his life of faith led to the apocalyptic kind of condemnation that, of course, resulted in the death of all breathing things upon the earth and all men. But Noah's life was a living rebuke to the unbelievers around him. His faithfulness to God seemed like madness to them because they, they had no idea what it meant to walk with God. How do you walk with God? How do you walk with someone you can't even see? But remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. But since, the logic of heaven goes, since God has told me, therefore I have every reason to be confident that He will sustain me until He brings me to my reward. Or as Paul said it, to live is Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. The unbelievers around him were offended by his message about the coming destruction God would unleash upon the world. Peter talks about it, about that in his apocalyptic, apocalyptic portion of his writings. He didn't have to yell at them or call them names. He didn't stand on the preach corner and wag his finger in their faces. His message itself was the offense. And because of his message and the consistency of his life with the message, his life also was an offense. No matter what he said to them, he could not get them to believe. It was that way in the days of Noah. It's that way today. C.H. Spurgeon once said, He who does not believe God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it either. He who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that God will pardon it. Against the evil generation, that nation or that world of people among whom Noah lived, his life and testimony shined with blazing condemnation. It didn't matter how gracious he was. We don't know much about Noah. But we know in our time of people who live like this, my grandfather was a great example of this. A man who walked with God, whose life was a joy to behold, and a guy who was an offense to so many people that he tried to share this God with. Noah's life was a testimony that shined with blazing condemnation. The man of faith rebukes his world simply by living in it. And it is it's said that a young man once in Athens approached Socrates and he said these words, I hate you because every time I meet you, you show me who I am. Jesus warned us that the world would hate us because we follow him. That's just one of the marks of a life lived by faith. In the end... 
However, the condemnation of the unbeliever will be just as real for them as it was for those who heard the door of the ark close from outside. So true faith obeys the word of God. True faith in the life of a believer rebukes the wicked. Finally, true faith inherits righteousness. Verse 7 again, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. True faith inherits righteousness. And isn't this what the author of Hebrews is saying all the way through? And notice he's not making a distinction between a decision of faith and a life of faith. The decision of faith should produce a life of faith. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11. The decision of faith should produce a life of faith. The difference between false faith and true faith is that the former thinks it will be accepted by God based on the righteousness which it achieves, while the latter believes he will be accepted by God based on the righteousness he inherits by faith. That's why in the Reformation they referred to this righteousness that we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. It's a righteousness that is extra nos, or outside of myself. It comes to me from somewhere outside of me, because I know one thing that's true about me. I cannot produce a righteousness with which God will be pleased. But the glory of the gospel is this. God has provided that righteousness for all who believe, for all who receive. Noah was the first man in the scriptures who was called righteous. And this passage here is the only place in Hebrews where this word, dikaiosune, is used, righteousness. And we know by the entire testimony of scripture that the only way a man became righteous in the sight of God is by faith. And I think whoever wrote this letter, and I don't believe it was the Apostle Paul, and I talked about that I think last week, but whoever wrote this, I think, knew the Apostle Paul's writings very well because he uses the same terminology. He says, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Romans three twenty-one and 22 says, but now, apart from the law, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That is, apart from being a good law keeper, God has provided grace. But now apart from the law, uh, 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 apart from the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all who keep the law, no, to all who what? Believe. Pistus. Faith. Believe. Trust. Confidence. And all this brings us full circle, does it not? The kind of faith with which God is pleased is not just a momentary faith, but it is a lifetime of faith. He is pleased with people who live by faith. The evidence for 
an internal faith is the fruit of an external faith that is visible in the life of the person of faith. By this faith, righteousness is granted as a free gift of God. By this faith, the world is rebuked for its God-belittling lifestyle. And by it, many impossible feats are achieved to the glory and praise of the one who is trusted by faith. Beloved, this is the normal Christian life. This shouldn't be controversial to us. This is the normal Christian life. This is what Paul argued all the way through his writings. This is what the author of Hebrews is arguing at least as passionately than the Apostle Paul, all the way through the book of Hebrews. This is the way that we are to live. God, say it, and I will do it. It's like Peter. Peter, like Noah, was called to do something impossible relative to water. Peter calls out to the Lord, who happened to be walking on the water, And he says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Bid me come. If it's you, I know you can make me walk on the water. And Jesus says, come on. Moses steps out of the boat, and his feet hit something solid. It wasn't ice. It was water. And he walked. It's just another illustration of a man who heard the word of God And thought for a moment, that's impossible. Of course I will. Lord, the thing you're calling me to do, that's impossible. But of course I'll do it. All of God's promises are true. He who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Therein is the grace of God. Therein is the love of God. There is the mercy of God. That we are His children by faith. We are provided for by faith. We will live with Him for eternity by faith. And we will accomplish much in this life by faith. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for these faithful men and women that the author is speaking of, and we aspire to be like them. We ask you, Father, to so move in our hearts that we would indeed become like them because we would want to become like the Christ that we see in them. So move in our hearts, Father. Grant us repentance from our unbelief And give us the nourishing, empowering faith of Noah. Oh, Father, today, as you call us to do difficult things in the very practical and mundane experiences of life, I pray that we would be found walking with God and faithfully responding to his word at every point for your great glory and for our own eternal joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name.